Hey there, welcome to The Bridge. This podcast is brought to you by the SOI Foundation. We're known as the organization that takes youth from around the world on life-changing expeditions to the polar regions and places in between. The SOI and SOI Foundation stands for Students on Ice, but expeditions are only the tip of the iceberg, pun intended. The great thing about our programming, whether we're at the polls or online, is that we bring people, youth, elders, and industry leaders together to learn from one another and have great conversations. In these conversations, we discuss the pressing issues facing people and the planet today. We share our knowledge and lived experiences with one another. Then we take what we learn back into our education and careers to continue making the planet a better place. We host many conversations on our various social media platforms and are excited to offer another way to engage with SOI here on our new podcast. In this first episode, you will hear from four youth who took part in our climate action cohort. They'll share their experiences attending COP25, the UN Climate Change Conference that took place in Madrid in 2019. Listen as Shakti, Will, Suman, and Mick discuss what it's like to witness hallway negotiations between events, the difference between meaningful and tokenizing youth engagement, and their experiences advocating for an intersectional approach to climate action. Folks, we're live. Hello, hello. How's it going? Uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another edition of The Bridge. Whoa. Uh, this is an engagement platform created by Students on Ice Foundation. My name is Suvin Han, and I'm here with my fellow 2019 Climate Action Cohort members. The Climate Action Cohort supports young climate leaders by bring, bridging the gap between policy, community action, and commu- youth engagement. As part of the CAC, we attended the UN Climate Change Conference, otherwise known as COP25, last year to listen, learn, and engage in an international climate policy. We're here today to discuss what it's like to attend an event like this, how youth are participating in this space, and what are our hopes for the future of climate policy. To give you an intro to me, myself, and I, uh, my name is Suman Han, I use she, her pronouns, and I am coming to you live from Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene people, and the homeland of the Métis Nation, or what is known as Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm currently studying environmental studies at the University of Manitoba, and I am so stoked to chat with my fellow friends on the CAC and with all of y'all watching the panel today. Next to you, Mick. Hey everyone, uh, again, welcome to this engagement. I'm very excited to uh, chat with my fellow CAC members. Uh, my name is Mick Jeffries, him, his pronouns. Um, I'm originally from the Nunatogavit land of Charlottetown, Labrador, um, but I'm currently coming at you from Fredericton, New Brunswick on the lands of the Wustukiyukia uh, peoples. Um, I'm currently in Fredericton studying law, so I'm going into my second year. Um, for my undergrad, I did a Bachelor of Leadership Philosophy and uh, yeah, I'm super pumped. I'm currently working in uh, conservation management um, in the legal department. So uh, the CAC and um, COP was a really great introduction uh, to me into environmental laws. Next up, we have Shakti. Awesome. Hey, everyone. My name is Shakti, and I'm so excited to have this conversation with Suman, Will, and Mick today. Uh, I'm coming to you from Vancouver, BC, which is the unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Um, I'm currently the communications manager at Student Energy. We're a global youth-led organization that works with over 50,000 young people around the world uh, to transform our energy systems. So on a day-to-day basis, my work really revolves around uh, climate change, clean energy, energy justice, and young people's role in climate action. So I'm excited to dive into all that today. Yeah, thanks, Shakti. Uh, my name is Will. I am an uh, Students on Ice alumni from the Antarctic 2014 expedition, originally from Kingston, Ontario, which is the traditional land of the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee. And now I'm, I'm coming to you today from my basement apartment in London, Ontario, where I'm a student at Western University. I'm currently in my undergrad pursuing a dual degree in mechanical engineering and business administration. And yeah, we all had such a great time at COP last year. I think in all of our different walks of life, we it was a really neat way to connect what we're really passionate about locally to what's happening in the, the climate change scene on a global scale. Um, and yeah, we learned so much and we can't wait to share with you. 
So the first question, which we're kind of gonna go round table style and I'll shoot it over to Suman to start is just generally, what was it like for all of us to attend COP25? Suman? Actually, this is like the hardest thing for me to answer. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, when I got back, I was like, what was it like to attend COP? And it, it just, there really, it can't be described really, but, and I'm sure a lot of my colleagues are going to kind of pitch in on what they learned um what we all generally learn but for me it was really an opportunity and place of learning um i really reflected a lot on how i approach climate action it shifted my perspective on what is climate action and what it could be i also reevaluated my role as a youth in these spaces that i occupy and that i had the opportunity to partake in um i still have so much to learn but it also I also had an opportunity to reevaluate on my privileges. So I know and feel how privileged I am to be living, you know, in Canada and with all of these privileges that I have, but also because I am living in a city, it also disconnects me from a lot of these injustices as people face. And I now, I have a better understanding of my privileges, not completely understanding what it's like to live in a climate crisis. Um, I can I can see of it, I can like hear about it, but I don't quite know what it feels like. And I had the opportunity to really reflect on that again. And it really encouraged me to think more about the spaces that I occupy, how I interact with my spaces, and I can now make better decisions for my career in the climate field. <laughs> <laughs> I will pass it on to Shakti. Yeah, um, I of course, echo everything that you said. Um, I think for me, COP is something I had followed in the news for years before um, I had I ever had the opportunity to go. It's something I tracked really closely and often with a lot of frustration, honestly, because it seemed like every year there was this huge gathering of world leaders and the most powerful people in the world and then decisions weren't being made that would actually address climate change. So I went into COP kind of curious about what would happen this year and also how these decisions take place uh, in the first place. Um, and I think what I, what the experience taught me was that there is so much happening at these conferences beyond the two sentence headlines that come out of it at the end. Um, and that was uh, actually a great thing for me to learn because um, it helped me internalize that we can't hedge our bets on a few politicians choosing to do the right thing or one or two agreements that might solve the entire climate crisis. Um, so I think that was my biggest reflection out of COP that came from actually being there rather than just watching it. Yeah, that's such a good point, Shakti. And something that I think I felt as well is you always see COP as like this um, in all conferences, and especially just the UN in general. It's like this big like organization. It's something very other. Um, but when we got there, you realize that it's more than just those few headlines. And it's also more than just those like important top officials. It's the work of like countless negotiators and youth and non-government organizations and activists all there. Like I think this year at COP, there was something like 27,000 people attended throughout the, the entire two weeks. Um, and when you think about that, that's just so many people and so much more than the two sentences that you read on like the whatever newspaper the when the, um, the conference is over. So that was a really neat thing for me as well, I think is like, having everything seemed so much more real and so much more personal by being there and being in the room and talking to the people who are in those decision-making positions um, and also are just as normal people as you are and having just as um, much conflict internally about the best thing to do for their constituents and for their communities and for the people that they care about. Um, it's a, a pretty complex place, but a really a neat place where there's a lot of like humanity um, even though from the outside, it seems so like block in like separate, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, and I think the big takeaway for me on a similar vein as Suman and Shakti is just the like how that like duality of being like very, very like inspiring to have all these passionate people, but also so frustrating to like how like how slow things work and um, and yeah, trying to like balance like where the work should be done. Yeah, definitely. Um, on the topic of passionate people, I thought that was the greatest thing about COP for me is seeing how much people actually care. 
um, not only like the government officials or the head of wh whatever the constituency or party were there, but um, sitting next to someone at an event and, you know, just having those small discussions, seeing where they're coming from, seeing what brought them to COP, um, and then learning about their kind of life journey to get to where they are today. Um, you know, as an Indigenous youth, uh, I learned a lot through storytelling. And that was one thing that I found COP was really great for is connecting with these people uh, through their stories, through their passions and through everything that they've been through to get to where they are today. Um, like Will said, it could be frustrating sometimes, absolutely. Um, especially when you, know, you go to these events and you're like, oh, we talked about this two or three years ago. Why hasn't anything changed since then? Um, but then really understanding the procedural outcomes of COP and seeing how much actually goes into it behind the scenes um, these are not things that can just happen overnight and they need time to be able to get to a place where they're not just checking off a list, but rather they're making sure that everything is done um, efficiently and effectively. So then when they do something, it's right and it's good and it's going to last for, for a while. Um, but again, sometimes we don't see that and, and that's, that can be extremely, extremely frustrating. Um, of course, there are different themes. Anyone can find their niche within uh, COP25, and that's kind of where we're going to with this next question. Uh, so Suman, um, what topic or what theme did you kind of follow throughout COP25 um, during your time? So I was there for two weeks. So first week I was trying to figure out what am I doing here? I thought I prepared myself. I studied so much, but then I got there and it was just like, this is so chaotic. This is so busy. Um, but I eventually found my way around the environmental law and policy section. So there was like one day during the entire two weeks where there was an off venue, like whole day event just dedicated to environmental law and policy. And that's where I really connected with a lot of actual negotiators talking about article six that was happening. I met like actual party leaders and lawyers and policy analysts and talking about how different fields of law can be applied to implement and encourage climate action. That was kind of what I followed. And also because I am really interested and passionate about environmental justice, I tried to fit in as much like different variety of topics that people were talking about and try to incorporate those learnings into my own learning and how everything could fit together. What about you, Will? Yeah, I think we spent, Suman and I spent a lot of time uh, looking at Article 6 a little bit because that was one of the big topics at COP this year. Um, for a little bit of context, um, so the big, in the history of COP, I guess, like the big event that happened that everybody kind of remembers the most is the Paris Agreement. Um, so that was COP 21 a few years back. And at that time, there was a, a big document that kind of gave a lot of background or like, us, I guess, guidelines on how the international community wanted to deal with climate change. And since the Paris Agreement, which was COP21, so a few years ago now, um, every COP, there's been new revisions trying to like finalize that agreement. And in COP24, so the year before we went, because um, we all attended COP25, the, the, all of the aspects of the Paris Agreement were agreed upon, except for this one article, Article 6, um, which Suman and, and I followed uh, quite a bit while we were there. Um, uh, and so Article 6, it was it's a, a summary of it was just kind of um, like the, the sparking to the, the quick notes on it is um, there like the international community was looking for a way to kind of track and mitigate um, how countries produce uh, carbon dioxide specifically um, and other greenhouse gases and uh, looking for a way to like trade and negotiate and uh, help um, account for what, which countries are producing what in a way that can establish some more international collaboration. So really like interesting in theory, but also very, very complex as Suman alluded to there. There's lawyers and there's um, scientists and government officials and ministers and all these people working on it. Um, and it's actually uh, was something that really didn't have a ton of progress unfortunately at this last COP. So um, all week people were trying to figure, all two weeks, I guess, people were trying to figure out a way that we could set up a system of accounting. So we would know um, so we can track emissions from countries and be able to trade emissions between countries. Um, but as you can kind of imagine, it, it was a pretty complex problem and it, a problem that the, internet, the UN wasn't able to solve in the time given, which 
to be honest, was a pretty, pretty um, frustrating and disappointing because like these are the people that are supposed to be working and they are the people who are working really hard on it, but it's also the people that we rely on to have um, action created and get things done. And we weren't able to reach an agreement, um, which I, it leaves us in a, a weird spot going forward because we have like most of the Paris Agreement agreed upon, but, but not quite all of it. Um, so yeah, that's the, the one of the themes I really uh, followed quite a bit throughout the, the whole process. Yeah, and um, for me, again, as an Indigenous youth, I followed the Indigenous People Caucus. So um, going to different events um, about different Indigenous communities globally and being able to see their struggles, you know, in the Amazon or in another part of the world that still relates to Indigenous uh, folks in Canada as well. Um, it's honestly mind-blowing to see what happens in Canada is impacting all these other Indigenous communities around the world. Um, you know, it's the coastal communities that really get impacted the most with climate change. But I also followed a topic of how people are impacted by climate change. Um, I attended a lot of side events that had to deal with, you know, chronic illnesses and how climate change really impacts folks who live with these chronic illness on a daily basis, whether they can't go for a run anymore because of the temperatures and because of the climate, um, whether they have the move because of, you know, earthquakes and tsunamis and all these different things that are really impacting their way of life. So seeing that connection, not only is our planet dying, but we have a lot of chronic illness and a lot of different things that are connected uh, through climate change and through health issues that people deal with on a daily basis. Uh, for me, being a diabetic, that was another thing that was brought up in a few discussions, which was really interesting to see that climate and temperature can actually impact um, blood glucose levels. It can impact how your body um, breaks down insulin. And it's these events that were really, really interesting um, alongside of the policy and alongside of the law um, that really sparked my interest in something that I've never really considered before. So again, you know, you have your interest going into it and then you can go one way or the other way, really depending on what events are scheduled that day. And, um, you know, events can pop up, events can change. And it's really just a choose your own adventure. Um, and you can mix and match and do a bunch of different things. And honestly, for me, that's how I got the most out of uh, COP25 was, yes, following a few specific themes, but also branching out and learning something completely new uh, that I never even considered before I never thought about um, during my climate advocacy. And um, it really just makes your climate advocacy more enriching to be able to have all these information, all these different uh, bases for different th themes and topics. I totally agree, Mick. I think um, I went in kind of with a similar goal. Uh, a lot of my day-to-day -day work is on energy, but at COP, I followed food systems and land use, which seems like it's completely a total departure from you know, what my job is on the day-to-day -day basis, but food systems really intersects with every aspect of climate action, but it's often left out of climate negotiations. And that's something I had been aware of before COP, but had a lot of questions on. I didn't know why it was left out or if anything was happening uh, in this area. So that's the area I chose to follow um, at COP25. And it was so fascinating. So unlike say article six, um, which is the carbon markets issue, food systems and agriculture weren't a center stage issue at COP. Um, it wasn't something that all the countries were, you know, close to an agreement on. We're at the very early stages uh, in that discussion. So it was interesting to figure out, okay, who is talking about this issue? And this year at COP, it seemed like there was so much happening, um, which I learned was different than previous conferences where it, it had kind of been like the elephant in the room. Um, and this year, um, there was so many, not just side events, but um, a lot of different uh, minor agreements between um, smallholder farmer advocacy groups, between community organizations, municipalities, regional um, state organizations. Uh, there are so many people working on the issue of food systems and agriculture. And I think that was something I was surprised and um, just had so much more to learn about. Um, and I came away from following this theme for the entire two weeks, knowing that we really have to think of land in every conversation about climate change. Um, I learned that uh, almost half of all the ice-free land on the earth is used for agriculture, and a lot of it is for animal agriculture, and it's really disrupting traditional smallholder 
um, farming cultures, which, you know, not just employs, but it really sustains millions, hundreds of millions of people. Um, so following this issue area, I think really informed my climate activism coming back to Vancouver and a place where honestly, we don't have to think about food systems or land in a day-to-day -day basis living in a big city. Um, but this is not the case for all parts of Canada and certainly not for all parts of the world. So I think following food systems and land use um, really made such a difference in how I approach my day-to-day -day work. And um, I guess I kind of got into the big takeaways already, but um, now I'm really curious to hear about, we've had almost a year, uh, that's wild to think about, but almost a year since we went to COP25. Um, there's still a lot, a lot has happened <laughs> since then in the world, in our lives. So what were the big, big takeaways from COP25 for you all? Maybe I'll start with Mick this time. Yeah, for sure. I think for me is that we still have so much work to do. Um, you know, having to reflect on COP throughout the year. Um, yeah, oh my gosh, there's so many different takeaways, but I think the biggest is there's still so much left to do um, in terms of climate change and climate advocacy. Um, and for me, that kind of really um, showed me that I, I can have a career in, in environmental law and Aboriginal law. And that's kind of where I am heading towards now with choosing my classes. And I really have COP to thank for that because it showed me that there are so many different places that you can work and so many different things that you can do to positively contribute to um, climate change um, and climate um, information. You don't want to <laughs> contribute to climate change, but um, just having all these different avenues and options um, to work in a bunch of different fields and really try to positively help out in that, in that direction. And I think also it's changed the way that I carry conversations at the dinner table, the way that I um, communicate with other people about climate and um, the way I view politics, the way I view everything now is completely changed by everything that I've witnessed and um, took away from COP. How about you, Will? Yeah, uh, I think what you said is so, is so true, just that there's so much work still to do. And I think for me, a big takeaway was how like inherently and, and to be honest, intentionally difficult some of that work is, um, especially at the system level of the UN. Um, like, I know we were laughing about uh, one day, I remember a cop coming back from a conference and somebody was like, we were in the middle of exams as we were doing it. And one of us was talking about like a group project we were working on or something like that. And getting frustrated with like a group member on this like one report in this one class because they like wouldn't finish or they kept editing the document on this like Google Drive. And then literally the next day, we were all sitting in one of these big plenary sessions where all the countries have their name tags and they're talking about the, the, the documents that are being approved. And literally this is happening at the UN. There's a word document on the screen and they're like, no, let's change this word. Like, I think it should be this word. And seeing how complex, like we, how frustrated we were with our group of four in like fourth year, like law or, what, or whatever course we were taking, and seeing how difficult it was to have 192 or roughly countries all working to find like one agreement on and all agree on one big concept, like how we handle climate change. Um, it really made me like aware, like Mick talked about how, how difficult the problem is, um, but also how impressive it is that though, that it's something that we're at this point. Like there's still so much to do and we're not moving nearly as fast as we have to be. But I think I still left a little, despite the frustrations, a little bit inspired just by the fact that all these countries were at least like in the room talking and not every country was being productive and not every organization was doing the right thing. Um, but to know the scope of the challenge and to see the work that's being put in, um, it, it made it like was weirdly like hopeful, even though the, the conference was like, at, like from an outside perspective, like pretty unproductive because not a lot happened um, in terms of like actual legislative policy, but seeing, yeah, seeing those efforts being made was like, was pretty cool. So that was my big takeaway for me. Suman, what do you think? Big takeaways? Yeah, for sure. I think for me, it was a lot about remembering that negotiations aren't everything. I went in there putting COP on a pedestal thinking this is where all the change is happening. This is, you know, where the big stuff happens. 
but going into the space, it really reminded me that just because I'm so engulfed and I study policy and environmental law, that's like that they're discussing and the news lines are, you know, broadcasting. That's not everything that goes into climate action. There's so many other factors that go into climate action. And we, or I tend to forget that policies and these, you know, bureaucratic paper stuff isn't everything, that this isn't going to be the thing that defines how we act for the next 10 years. And we need to remind ourselves that this isn't everything. And what really, you know, stood out to me was actually all the events that were being held by indigenous youth. And there's one in particular that Shakti and I actually went to. And they, it was like hosted by an organization called Sustain Us. And I still remember it. I still think about it every day. <laughs> And it was just like, how incredible is it that like a lot of these indigenous folks are leading the conversation, they're, you know, showing up and the fact their presence itself is radical activism and their solutions and their insight that they have to share is what we need to listen to. And the difference of the negotiation kind of energy and these action rooms and these side events where these where people are so empowered and they're you know sharing their knowledge with other folks that was kind of what really stood out and I brought that with me back to my community thinking about how can I contribute more to my local community and how do I support more grassroots initiatives because I was so focused on how do I bring this giant international topic into my very small relatively small city but I should be thinking about how do I you know do the same kind of create that same energy where I bring or I create that support others to create that support and empowerment and bring it to a global stage so I was thinking about it in a in the opposite direction um, so it was really great to be reminded of that and just constantly remind myself that negotiations is, isn't everything that a protest sometimes does the trick and that's you know, there's so many avenues that we can take climate action and it's not what we typically think to be the quote unquote climate action stuff. What about you, Shakti? I, yeah, I definitely agree. One moment that stands out to me is on the day we went to that uh, incredible youth-led Sustain Us side event. Um, a few hours before that, we were sitting in the hallways of this giant hangar-like space where a cop was happening, trying to identify what does like section 6.7.2 mean? <laughs> And what do these, uh, like, what are the clauses that are being negotiated today? Um, and we were really trying to unpack it and really internalize it. Um, this was on the issue of carbon markets. And then we went to the side event and and it was <laughs> like, I, I was brought to tears because there we talked about what actually matters, um, protecting our earth's natural ecosystems, protecting each other, showing up for our communities in small and global ways. And the contrast could not be more stark. And I think my biggest takeaway from that is, yes, there is a lot of nuance and a lot of detail that we need to hammer out and to come to a world agreement. But some things are also just very simple. And the things that matter to a lot of people and the things that we need to prioritize um, as a planet are, are not actually that complicated. Um, and I think that contrast really reminded me that um, grassroots activists and organizations, young people, um, journalists, indigenous activists, they are not just setting the compass for where we need to go in a really clear headed way that, you know, doesn't always have to deal with the bureaucracy of uh, these climate negotiations, but they are also actively implementing solutions in their own communities and not waiting for these agreements to be settled. Um, and I think that's a really important takeaway from COP is it's not like we can't do anything until we get section 7.2 point whatever hammered out you know yeah um, yeah and also just that like makes me think as well I know the conversation we had quite often was just how inherently like exclusive some those negotiations and those conversations are like in order to be in those rooms making decisions on like on behalf of a country like right but you're all there's like so much institutional and systemic like pressures and powers that go into place to placing those people in the room and although it like you say Shakti it is important to hammer out some of those details and the nuances of all the different amendments and articles and whatever like that's not where the co real conversation around climate action is happening because most people aren't in those rooms and like and can't be and also the rooms are like inherently structured to like not be in the language and the 
like route of path, like action where a lot of people can participate. So whether it's grassroots or indigenous knowledge or all those things, like at the UN level and at that, the, that like technical negotiation level, all those voices like often are being excluded. So that was a big takeaway for me and just one that you guys really reminded me now of, like, which is so neat to be like reflecting so far after the event. But um, yeah, just like how distant sometimes those like technical things are from like the real conversations that matter. Totally. And I just want to thank everyone uh, for tuning in uh, to our conversation. Um, it's so great to have this chat with our SOI community. So thank you all. Um, we've gotten some really neat audience questions. Um, I'll, should I read them all out? <laughs> no, I'll read them out one by one. There's some really good ones. So two related questions we've got, one from Monique and one from Brittany. Um, Monique asks, do you think traveling for climate change conferences and the resulting greenhouse gas emissions are offset by the work that is being accomplished? Um, Monique says this is something they've struggled with also. And Brittany adds on, do you think attending COP virtually or other similar events virtually would have made um, a similar kind of impact? Um, and there's a follow-up question there about um, any suggestions for um, supporting young people who want to attend conferences like COP and can no longer do so due to COVID. How can we ensure youth can still get in that space if now we're limited um, due to COVID? I can tackle the first half of the question. So about like traveling for COP and the virtual. So COP25 was initially supposed to happen in Chile. However, a month before it was supposed to happen, it got um, the Chilean government uh, announced that they couldn't host it. So COP was venueless for two weeks. <laughs> and as we were, as I was trying to follow the news, there was a lot of conversation about, well, should COP finally happen virtually? And although there are a lot of emissions related to traveling due to COP, there's also a lot of smaller countries that really require their presence to be there in order to participate in the conversation. So a lot of the big power, the power dynamics kind of enforce the big powers to be able to, you know, even if they aren't present in the room, their presence is felt somewhere else. But a lot of these small countries that need their voices to be heard, a lot of the marginalized countries, their voices aren't heard unless they're present in the room. And because the past four or five cops have been present in like Europe, it also presents a lot of you know, problems with visa and a lot of folks not being able to get into the country in the first place. Um, and a lot of also like side negotiations happen literally in the hallway, outside of the room where there's like the main negotiation, it happens in the hallway and that can't happen in a virtual space. I'm sure a lot of people are like participating in Zoom calls these days and you know how chaotic it gets even with like 10 people. So imagine having like 200 negotiators in one Zoom call <laughs> trying to have a, a productive conversation or even side conversations. It's just really difficult to manage. And I think that was something that SOI and YCL Youth Climate Lab also took into consideration because after we returned from COP, we also picked uh, an organization that, or and an initiative that offsets our carbon footprint. So we, in some ways we try to kind of address that. I, I'm sure that's not the case for like all um, COP attendants, but at least for our case, we were considerate of that and we try to address it in a way. Anyone? Yeah, I'll that? also, I'll jump in there. Um, I, I'm always conflicted on this kind of question and topic uh, yes, I think it'd be great if we could do it virtually. Um, however, I hate to say this, but no, I don't think we would have had the same impact, um, especially as Shakti and Suman talked about, you know, um, the protests and the different events that Indigenous youth um, created at, at COP um, and having media there to report it, it would just wouldn't be the same virtually. Um, and that's going to be really interesting to see how they, um, you know, produce COP this year with COVID. But I think that it's only the big fish, the big people that you see in these rooms, and they're going to be the ones that are going to be prioritized in um, these Zoom calls. However, having like an open space and being able to speak your mind, being able to mobilize as youth, being able to mobilize as Indigenous people um, really had an impact on me and also on COP. You know, we saw people getting detained because of the protests that were happening. 
Um, and the media, you know, took that up and really highlighted their causes. So I think that it would be great and fantastic to see a kind of virtual COP where there are no carbon emissions happening. However, I still don't think carbon emissions are, you know, validified or, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if the impact is worth it as such, but for me seeing the impact of people being together and being able to mobilize and being able to have that networking and story connection and, um, you know, story sh sharing, I think that that's really important. It's something that I don't know if that could happen over uh, virtual. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that the, yeah, the conversations that around like the, the voices that are being excluded in sometimes like virtual or those settings, I think that would be the biggest concern. I think that we, we all see in COP because there's so many spaces in COP where um, it's not even always about the negotiations. Like there's side events happening where it's just people who are interested in the same topics and the same conversations and um, whether it's an industry or it's non-government organizations or um, it's not-for-profits or whatever. And those that spaces to connect informally, um, I think adds so much value. Um, and also I think sometimes if we hyper-analyze like individual um, carbon footprints, although it's really important to like evaluate what each of us are doing on the planet, like each of our impacts on um, in our own carbon emissions in our own lives, I think sometimes it also um, distracts from the bigger um, polluters and the bigger uh, causes of like uh, large-scale global warming, which are like mainly the biggest companies in the world and the, the those tycoons of industry that uh, cause a lot of those uh, emissions, and also just large governments. Um, so I think having, although like there is an inherent like juxtaposition of like we are so much travel and twenty-seven thousand people all coming to the city, like that's a huge emission and something that needs to be looked into, but also. Um, we can't distract from the importance of having all those people because the more you limit the room, the less people have a voice. Yeah, I definitely agree with um, everything everyone has said. I think being there in person, there's just that spontaneous opportunity for um, connecting and building solidarity networks that aren't possible virtually for COP. But I do want to address Brit the second part of Brittany's question is now that travel is paused for the meantime, um, what can we do to ensure that young people's voices are still heard and there are that we still create those opportunities to engage with these important issues when we are limited by forces outside of our control? And I think um, from this is something I think about every day, uh, our, since our uh, work at Student Energy revolves around getting young people's voices heard in the energy sector, a sector that has historically not been uh, so inclusive of the voices of young people or marginalized communities. And now we have this additional caveat as of physically we cannot be in the room where a lot of big decisions are made. So what can we do? Um, we're investing a lot as an organization into building um, networks of trust and community networks of young people so that we can represent each other um, whenever we do have an opportunity to kind of be in these spaces. Um, and I think uh, this obviously requires a great deal of virtual collaboration and we need to think creatively so that we can still kind of get involved in uh, these big decisions that are being made even if we can't physically be there. So I think I'm really focusing on connecting with other young people rather than um, seeing how can I personally get myself to X conference, X decision-making meeting. Um, how can I kind of build a movement of young people so that we have this kind of big, diverse, unified presence um, when one of us or a few of us do have an opportunity to be in those spaces. Um, and that kind of relates to our next question on what it was like being a young person in that space. Like Will said before, there were 27,000 people at COP25. What was it like being a young person in that space? I think overwhelming <laughs> um, and that's for me that was a like overarching thing and especially what like we talked about before especially in the UN system and just how um, the like seeing lots of people who are like traditionally um, like placed in positions of success whether they're ministers or leaders of industry or whatever like um, there's just such a like an air of busyness I feel like at COP 
like people are there's constantly things to be doing and negotiations to be having and i think sometimes as a young person you have to you get a little bit of imposter syndrome because although your voice is like arguably the most important at the table at those events because um like the voice of youth to, and i think all of us would agree is the most important voice in climate action um but it, you really have to do lots to convince yourself of that because it's easy when you see people walking around in suits and briefcases and on the call and um, and like sliding pieces of paper back and forth between desks and whatever. Um, it's easy to think that I don't belong in this space because I don't have that experience or my voice isn't valid. Um, so I think it's that constant like reassuring of yourself that like, no, like this is where you're supposed to be. Your voice is important. And the people that are making decisions uh, need to like, need to hear your voice. I can speak on it briefly. I'll leave the comment on tokenization to Mick. <laughs> um, but there is definitely a lot of tokenism. And there's a lot of just, you know, talking to youth for the sake of checking the box. And what I want to say is there is a stark difference between how people listen to you, between the the adults in the room, might I say and the other youth delegates. So when you're speaking to a lot of these um, official delegates who are more adult per se, they're, <laughs> they're more likely to, not all of them, but they're more likely to just kind of nod at a couple of things that you, the points you bring up and just take a picture and walk away. Whereas a lot of the youth delegates are willing to brainstorm and listen and be willing to you know, translate what they're hearing at COP into what they can bring into their local you know, community. So they're more focused on how do I bring this opportunity and the, the knowledge that I've gained into our community. And they're willing to sit with people from literally all across the world. There was an, a side event called like youth bringing COP youth to our community, something like that, but it was organized by the European Union. I did not know that. I am not from the European Union, but I went. I was the only non-European Union person there, but they were also willing to just listen to my North American, you know, how things work there and how I can bring the, what I learned at COP back into my community. And not just in that event, but in literally any event that you attended, it didn't matter where they came from or what their university degree looks like or what their educational experiences look like. They're all willing to sit there and listen and take in your perspective and add on some, you know, incredible, insightful piece to your thoughts and bring it back to you and continue growing that idea out. So there's definitely a difference in how they approach you and how they communicate with you and how they incorporate what you say into kind of what they share with other folks that they also run into. Yeah, I'll jump in now. Um, I think one positive thing I think about being a youth is being able to connect with the other youth, um, seeing what they're doing in their local communities and then not having to reinvent the wheel, but rather um, taking what they've already done and adding on to it or being able to network and combine events together, combine resources and really make it more efficient and effective. Um, secondly, kind of responding to Will's um, statement he made. Um, one thing that I kept reminding myself is a lot of these adults around the room are paid to be there. A lot of the youth that's there volunteer their time, fundraise to get to that space and are really there because they are passionate and they want to be there. Um, you can see the fire, you can see the energy in their, in their eyes and in the way that they speak. And that was honestly the most inspiring thing I've, I've ever been a part of. Um, going to these youth forums and the energy that just comes out of the room is phenomenal. And you know, you go, to, you go to concerts, you go to festivals, and you don't even have that much passion or energy as you do at COP25 in a youth forum. Um, but one thing that was negative about being a youth is, as Suman said, it's kind of tokenism. You know, they want to check that box. They want to invent you. They want to invite you to the table and uh, say that they're inclusive, but they don't want to feed you a meal and integrate your thoughts into the discussion. Um, and that was one of the things that were very frustrating um, that, you know, we didn't get called on if I had my hand up and then if other adults or someone with a suit had their hand up, they would get picked on before me uh, because they thought that someone else would have more to offer than a little youth like myself. Um, and I think that was, that was the most um, frustrating thing. Um, it's not always positive and it's not always going to be positive, but that just, you know, gave me a kick in the butt to push further, push harder 
and connect with other youth to be able to mobilize and make our voices more stronger together. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I totally agree on finding a lot of power and hope with other young people, but kind of being frustrated with our interactions with like the official process, um, which kind of ties into this next question we got from Guy Brodsky in the audience that says, what do you see as COP's strengths and weaknesses in incorporating youth perspectives in the discussions and in final documents? So where do we fit in the, the final out climate mm -hmm. solutions outcomes of COP? It's a good question. It's a great question. Um, I had some initial thoughts on this. The strengths are that young people have been organizing at COP pretty much since its inception. So there's a lot of, um, I guess, informal networks within COP where groups of young people, organizations representing young people have been able to make um, substantial impacts in, uh, in the actual, the documents that come out of COP. And of course, the second big strength is that COP, since it is such a global and public event. Um, if young people are loud and they bring in the media with them, they will be heard. And although governments and decision makers and companies may not respond directly to this pressure, it no doubt plays a role in negotiations um, because of course all governments are representing their constituents at the end of the day. Um, so building this public pressure, I think no one's better at it than young people. So that's a big strength for COP is having this public stage where um, all countries kind of have their eyes on one area at one time. Um, but the weakness is, of course, how that exactly connects the dots to what we see in the often kind of diluted um, agreements and amendments that come out of COP. Uh, it's not always entirely clear where young people's voices were represented. Yeah, definitely. Um, kind of talking about the final piece of negotiations and how youth voices can be added there was a youth consultation for the nationally determined contributions kind of near the second week. And the conversation that were happening around these NDCs or nationally determined contributions were so starkly different than what the conversations were like in the negotiation rooms, might I say. And it's because the youth are asking the difficult questions. They're asking the challenging questions that other officials and negotiators aren't asking. They're these youth are asking the questions that, you know, look at the intersecting factors that contribute to climate action and climate justice. They're not looking at it from a single point of view. They're looking at it from a wide variety of point of view. And I think we kind of, you as a youth, have the advantage to kind of push the boundaries of what can be asked and what we can challenge them to do. But again, like Shakti said, the challenge is, okay, so you had this consultation but that wasn't reflected in the final document. So where was the disconnect? Where was the gap that fell through? Because we told you what we wanted to see. We told you what questions we had. However, that wasn't translated. And it feels frustrating because we're, we're asking the right questions, but we're not getting an answer. We're just getting head nods. So, but also again, like bringing it back to what I was saying earlier, youth are able to bring in that urgency because it's not because they don't understand the technical processes. Like these people are incredibly intelligent. They understand every aspect of this policy, but they also understand the urgency and they're willing to push for it and they can figure out in innovative solutions to address the technical gaps that they're seeing. But Again, it's not being delivered up to the top people who are actually making the negotiations. It's getting caught in between politics. And that's one of the powers that youth have because they're not connected to a lot of political affiliations or have different you know, things that they need to be considerate of while they're making a public statement. It pushes them to be more creative and push outside of the box. What about you, Will? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like you kind of hit the nail on the head with that one, Suman. Um, yeah, I think the, there is a big disconnect between the, like the conversations and the final documents. And I think that just a lot comes to who's actually doing the writing. And a lot of times it's the paid in like, uh, either by election or by, um, like employment, the government officials that are doing those final drafts. And I think that's to me where the big disconnect comes from is, um, like, it's important to have youth at the table through all the consultation process and the discussion. But at the end of the day, if you truly value the voice of 
what any marginalized community in the climate action space, whether it's indigenous peoples, youth, um, whether it's uh, people in like, developing countries, uh, all those places are, all those voices need to be actually writing the policy, not just being consulted. I really don't have anything to add. I think you all kind of uh, answered it perfectly. So we'll move on to the next item of discussion, uh, which is surrounding hopes of climate advocacy in the future, climate solutions, and um, one kind of topic or area that we saw a lot of momentum at COP. So um, I'll answer this one first. Uh, one thing that I think is number one, uh, there's no one size fit all for you know climate solutions or climate change. It's all intersectional. Um, there's different things that's going to work for different countries, uh, depending on where you're located geographically, depending on your resources that you have available, and depending on um, the relationship between government and citizens and who's making the calls and who's responding to the calls. Um, and that's all going to be different uh, depending on where you are in the world. But one thing that I specifically would like to see more of, and one thing that I think is slowly gaining more traction is the combination of indigenous knowledge and Western knowledge. We are now finally seeing indigenous knowledge being cited in academic papers. We're seeing a lot of the newly solutions of climate change really reflect traditional indigenous ways of dealing with these climate solutions. And that's one thing that I think have a lot of potential and something that I'm very hopeful for, for the future of climate change. And if I can just add in before everyone answers a question from Ingrid in the audience, it's kind of related to what we hope to see at the next COP. Um, so they're based in the UK, which is where COP26 is supposed to be held. Um, is there anything that we hope might be done differently there than COP25? Um, so I guess in addition to your hopes for COP26, anything that should change from COP25? Yeah, I think for me, um, what Mick was saying with the incorporation of like a broader scope of knowledge and, um, and just, yeah, more voices in the actual conversations, but also a change in focus on what's important, I think. I think a lot of times, um, especially at, from uh, more westernized push. The, the conversations I heard around um, the need for climate action focused heavily on like economic problems, um, problems of industry and problems of um, changing like job markets and all those things where I didn't hear a ton of conversation and the focus of those conversations being on, being on the people and on the ecosystems. Um, and I think that that is a really important distinction because Although it is important to talk in like at some extent at the economic impacts of climate change, um, the real the real impact of climate change will be on people in coastal communities in um, in areas and in, in, in ecosystems that are extremely like temperate and um, like Arctic and Antarctic community or ecosystems, and those are the the places where climate change is going to have the biggest effect. Um, so my one of my hopes, I guess, for uh, COP26 is to have conversations um, framed more around those important issues of ecosystem um, collapse and of, um, of coastal communities and of changes of lifestyle rather than changes of economy. I totally agree, Will. Um, specifically on the ecosystems piece, I would love to see more of a focus on food systems and land in COP26, particularly on the responsibilities of different countries. Um, with a focus on protecting smallholder farmers and others who are already the most vulnerable to climate change, but will only become more of an issue down the road. And on a related note of what I think can be framed differently, I think you made a really important point, Will, on kind of economics are just one part of the equation, but they can tend to dominate the discussion at COP due to uh, the, the interests involved. Um, I would love to see more of a focus at the next COP on demand side solutions and on protecting carbon sinks. I think at a lot of climate conferences, um, the focus tends to be on like, what's new? What's the newest technology? Um, how can we reduce emissions using these exciting new technologies? Who's going to fund it? Who's going to make money from it? Who's going to lose money from it? Um, and this is unfortunately just one half of the climate change problem is reducing emissions. If we have any hope of achieving our Paris targets, we need to also sequester emissions. And the cheapest and most equitable way to do that is by protecting our natural carbon sinks. So our forests, peatlands, grasslands, and oceans. 
Um, so I would love to see more of a focus on that kind of demand side and protecting our existing carbon sinks uh, at COP26 um, to kind of offset the, the almost full focus on the supply side at COP25. For me, what I'd like to see is just focusing on the intersectionality of all the issues that are brought up. Um, there is a growing interest in like the intersectional climate justice. However, we're still looking at a the climate change from a strictly environmental and scientific point of view. And it's, you know, we're growing to understand how everything is interconnected, but we're also forgetting that if we don't, we're not being distracted if we focus on another aspect of climate action. It would, just because we're not talking about the scientific side of it doesn't mean that we're being distracted. Everything, like any time you tackle a systemic barrier, that is climate action. And everyone says like systemic change is climate action. So focus more on that. And I, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by how intersectional everything is and the amount of work that we're going to have to do in order to address every single systemic barrier that exists in the world. But we're also forgetting that climate activists and climate justice activists aren't the only people thinking about the intersectionality of all of this. There are people already existing who are you know, working on racial justice, who are working on disability justice, all these things, they're people who are experts in it. So why are we trying to sit here, understand how everything fits when people are already experts? So bring those people who are you know, activists, who are passionate about these other issues that we don't normally associate with climate action, bring them into our space and, and work together. And I think as big and as broad of a topic this is and as broad of a you know, intersectionality, however broad it can be, it's like if we don't address all of them at the same time, as difficult as it is, we have people who are invested, we have people who are willing to make those changes, so bring them in, diversify the space. It doesn't mean tokenize, you know, designate one person so that one person can sit there and speak for the entire community. Bring them in, bring as many people as you can into that space and actually listen to them and use their knowledge and insight into your policies. That's the only way you're gonna get it. Uh, COP26, I'm sure we're still gonna be talking about COVID, unfortunately. I'm sure we're gonna be thinking about how to, you know, put COVID recovery alongside climate action. And it's not a separate conversation, it's the same conversation. It's now is more of a time like COVID has released and revealed so many gaps that exist in our society. We need to look at these gaps and understand that the gaps that COVID made were the exact same gaps that climate change made. So we need to be addressing them at the same time. We need to fund better, you know, sustainable urban planning. We need to plan and ensure that we're doing a just transition. All these things that we've been talking about, it all needs to happen at on a linear, what is it, linear level? It needs to happen simultaneously. You can't just be talking about COVID recovery and climate action on a separate note. It's, what is it, the, the idiom, it's like two sides of the same coin or something we got to be talking about it at the same time. So that's what I'd like to see at COP26 to wrap this up. Just, just small things, just small things. <laughs> just small, small incremental things. But I think, Suman, you're so right. And I think the, the biggest thing is like recognizing that climate change is, is not an issue that we have to solve so we can continue, but it's something that we have to change our entire like, system so that we're constantly addressing because with an issue such as climate change it's not going to be something that we continue the same way we're doing and can just fix on the side while marching forward it's something that's going to have to in order to fix properly and sustainably and for the future it's going to have to be something that we change a lot and i think your point about covid and about intersectional knowledge and all those things really um, touches that really well so well said Suman. um Looking at the time, I know we're, we're approaching the hour there and we're, we're really going to try to keep it under. So um, we just want to say thank you for our audience for joining us on the bridge today. Um, special thanks to uh, Alex and Laura and Rachel, the SOI comms and alumni team who have been working really hard to put this on. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that happens that is really important for and this is the opportunity that um, the, or the work they do gives us the opportunity to share the youth voice. 
um, which is really, really impactful. So thank you all to those folks who've been working on the SOI team to uh, on the CAC and to give us a platform to speak today. Um, also, big thanks to Youth Climate Lab and the Lawson Foundation for making the entire climate action cohort possible. And for all of our viewers, um, if we didn't get to a question, not to worry, um, we're gonna be looking through the comments and the questions afterwards, and we'll answer them via text um, in the next little bit. So again, we hope that you enjoyed this discussion today. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you back here on the bridge very soon. Thank you for listening to this first episode of The Bridge, brought to you by the SOI Foundation. Interested in learning more about our Climate Action Cohort? This year's cohort members have just been selected and are headed to BC in a couple of weeks for their nature retreat. They will engage in climate action, plan for the year ahead, and if you're interested in following along, be sure to follow us at Students on Ice on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you want to hear more conversations from The Bridge, follow us here to get notified when we upload more podcasts or check out soibridge.com. Until next time, thank you for tuning in and joining us today on The Bridge.